0: It is another grand privilege, isn't it, to be able to assemble, to come together for the purpose we are? Jesus Himself said it so well, didn't He? Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. That famous refrain of Matthew 4, verse number 10. And tonight, as we've assembled in the comfort of this place, we have the opportunity to sing and to pray and to do those things that God has testified are pleasing in worship to Him, and we joy at the thought of doing that. And as the next few moments, we'll look at one section, one small section admittedly of the Word of God. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 17 and 18, that text that was read in our hearing just a moment ago, we have set before us a rather remarkable principle. I hope as we unfold that principle tonight, we'll see its implications in a rather remarkable set of ways. I've entitled the lesson to fulfill the law. As you appreciate that by itself, these introductory remarks might at least provide us with an opportunity to consider some initial thoughts that we might use, of course, to motivate the rest of the lesson. As you and I address the Law of Moses, we understand so well what a vital part of the Bible it is. It, of course, rests within that which we call the Old Testament. It sets before us the manner in which God dealt with lots of people for a lot of years. Even though He doesn't deal with us today that way, nonetheless, the disposition of that law, the considerations that one can consider with respect to it, speak a great amount that can help you and me today. Some of those questions at the bottom. So what ultimately happened to that law of Moses, and how did it happen? If we aren't under it today, but there were some who were at one point, what was it that officially occurred with respect to it? And Jesus Himself used a remarkable word in one text as He made reference to that idea. We'll discuss that during a part of our lesson tonight. At the bottom of that slide, there of course continues to be some rather noteworthy misunderstanding relative to the law of Moses. Maybe you've had someone to knock on your door at one time or another. Maybe read an article in the newspaper in which someone makes a strong assertion as to the accountability of the old law today. Of course, they're mistaken about that. But how do you and I appreciate maybe some passages that can help us understand that so well? Let's begin like this. First of all, what about some particulars of that law? Remember, we're talking now about that law that God gave to the children of Israel through Moses. And so it's often called the law of Moses, but may we never forget Moses didn't come up with it. It may be called by that name, but he didn't come up with it. God gave it to him, who in turn gave it, of course, to Israel. Notice at the very top. We understand so easily that it is, of course, a vital part of the Word of God. So many New Testament passages... You and I would never fully understand if we didn't have the background of that law of Moses. How often did Jesus and the others quote, sometimes from that very law, to help explain a pertinent principle? In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the inspired apostle so powerfully stated, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. At that point, as we close that third chapter of 2 Peter, notice long before men ever divided it, look how chapter 4 begins, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. In light of the thoroughness of, the marvelous character of that word of God, he's going to judge individuals in light of their disposition and their obedience in regard to it. Not only that, look at the second point. It is still true that that law should be studied with care. Paul forevermore asserted that, didn't he, in Romans fifteen four, among other places? For whatsoever things were written aforetime, That's a direct reference to what you and I would call Old Testament issues and Old Testament matters. He said, what was written aforetime was written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Paul thus taught, didn't he, that an appreciation of and an understanding of the Old Testament can be the thoroughfare through which hope and the thoroughfare through which a proper understanding of God's dealings with men can even be had today. Oh, how you and I thrill at the thought of studying then out of those 39 Old Testament books and maybe in particular the Law of Moses sections. Not only that, in 1 Corinthians 10, really, verses 1 through 12, a presentation is given in which Paul time and again quoted from the activities that the children of Israel experienced and said, this was a vital message for you and me as Christians today. We aren't to be complainers like they were. We aren't to be given to idolatry like they were. We aren't to be given to sexual sin like they were. And on and on that list goes. Surely, in light of all those things, let's now then cast a spotlight on the law of Moses. When you and I begin the Old Testament in the book of Genesis, we realize the law of Moses wasn't given until many chapters into the book of Exodus. In fact, Exodus chapter 20 was when God delivered that law to Moses while he himself was on Mount Sinai. But I would ask you to notice Deuteronomy chapter 5. There is a very powerful passage before us here. I'd like to read that and then let's make some comments about it. Deuteronomy chapter 5. I'll begin reading in verse number 2. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Now, Horeb, again, is just another name for Sinai. So Moses is making reference to Mount Sinai. He said, The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us who are are all of us here alive this day. The Lord talked with you face to face in the mount out of the midst of the fire. I stood between the Lord and you at that time to show you the word of the Lord, for ye were afraid by reason of the fire and went not up into the mount. You may have noticed as we just appreciated that passage, as Moses addressed the children of Israel, he affirmed then that this law of Moses was given to a certain people. Did you notice? He said it wasn't given to our fathers. It was given to all of us who are here alive this day. And Moses made that statement. I've tried to summarize it like this. It was given to those that came out of Egyptian bondage. The children of Abraham through Jacob that came out of Egyptian bondage, they were the ones to whom God gave that law. It wasn't given to any other people on earth even then. Not only that, it was given for a specified purpose. God had a plan in mind, as He always does. He had a very strong commission relative to their behavior in mind, and we'll see that developed further in the lesson this evening. But inasmuch as it was given to those people, might you and I pause to notice, then not a Gentile on earth, either then or since, has ever been beneath this law. It wasn't ever given to them. Again, God through Moses said, all of you this day. And He even said it twice, so we wouldn't miss it. Isn't it tragic then that some throughout the ages have at least failed to appreciate that passage? But let's read even further. When you and I give thought to that law of Moses and that which it consists of, Mm -hmm. maybe you and I first think of the Ten Commandments. And isn't it still fascinating that not only are those recorded in Exodus chapter 20... In Deuteronomy 5, they're given to us again to make sure we don't miss that truth. If you and I then ever had a position to doubt, again, Moses said the very law that was given to us, to us this day, and then he started to list the Ten Commandments. We can't misunderstand which law we had in mind. It's the very ones, (laughs) the very commandments that said, Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. Honor thy father and thy mother. The very commandments that said thou shalt never take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, as well as, of course, the others, to make the total of ten. Those were a part of that law of Moses. But let us keep in mind that wasn't all of the law of Moses. That was just the beginning of it. As you and I would recollect it, those books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy... That set, taken together, are called the Pentateuch. I've actually written that word for us to consider for at least a moment. Penta is a prefix that at least you and I recognize means five. For instance, a pentagon is a five-sided regular figure, isn't it? A Pentateuch. Now, the word "took" again, in that ancient language meant law. So the five books of law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Now, as you and I have seen it, really only the last four of them highlight that law of Moses. Genesis doesn't include the law of Moses. With that in mind, you'll notice many later Old Testament books, Joshua and Judges and the Kings and the Chronicles and Samuel and so on down the list, as they form our appreciation of, they make references to that law. Because time and again we see God's dealings with His people. He expected them to keep that law. He expected them to be knowledgeable of it. And He expected them to be obedient to it in light of all those things. Think then about the way in which the law of Moses has occupied positions really of appreciation throughout the human family. Consider Jesus' quotation of parts of it. Without hesitation, when Jesus was asked, What is the greatest commandment in the law? The Lord immediately quoted from Deuteronomy 6: Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the greatest commandment, Jesus said. He even went further than the question asked of him, for he said, The second one is like to it, love thy neighbors thyself. He quoted that from Leviticus nineteen. The Lord was sufficiently knowledgeable, sufficiently understanding. He quoted those without any hesitation at all. As you come to the bottom of that slide with me, what then could be asserted as the purpose of that law? You and I have already stated tonight, that law is not enforced today. Why then did God ever give it? Why then did He ever burden, if you please, the nature of the descendants of Abraham through Jacob, with that law? Perhaps two two immediate answers, one of which is in Romans chapter 7. In the seventh verse of that chapter, Paul highlighted on that occasion the fact that it was by that law that I learned what sin was. I would never have known what it meant to covet unless the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. Therefore, Paul said it was a marvelous teaching tool, refining the human understanding relative to what it is to transgress the law of God. did not it, it true it helped those Jews of the Old Testament to understand what it was to be a servant of God? A servant of God honors his parents, and a servant of God doesn't take God's name in vain, and a servant of God doesn't commit covetousness. And further, and further down that list one might go. Maybe one last thought. It seems as though Paul selected for us this presentation in Galatians 3, and I would ask you to notice it. We, you see, are not by any means the only ones who might well have asked the question, why did God ever give that law? Let's read Galatians three nineteen and listen to Paul's answer. You'll notice on that occasion, when Paul was asked the question, this is how by inspiration he answered, Wherefore then serveth the law? Did you hear the question? Paul said, why then was the law given? And he's referring to the law of Moses, and here's the answer. It was added because of transgression, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. I've summarized it with that phrase at the very bottom of the slide. Paul, why was the law given? It was added because of transgressions. Whose transgressions? Human transgressions. It was added to check sin when? Until the seed should come. I wonder who the seed is. Jesus Christ. Earlier in verses 16 and following, Paul had told us that, and hence the law was given to serve for a period of time to restrain or check human tendency to sin. The purpose was for it to last until the seed should come. God never intended that law to be permanent. He never intended it to last on and on and on. It was given for a, to a certain people for a certain purpose to last only a certain amount of time. With all those things said about that law, it's rather fascinating then to listen to Jesus describe it and to discuss it. And might I invite us to do that at this point as well. It is at this point. Jesus said it like this in that lesson text that was read in our hearing earlier. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. As the Lord began His public ministry, early on in this Sermon on the Mount, He, in fact, addressed this matter even at this stage, and He said, "'Think not that I am come to destroy the law.'" There might well have been some in that day who would be quick to say, "'So, Jesus, you're telling us you've come to destroy that law.'" Jesus said, "'No, no, 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 I have not come for that purpose.'" Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. Did he expressly say, I am not come to destroy, verse 17. The Lord did not come to destroy that law of Moses. Now maybe some in our world today would misunderstand that truth. He did not come to destroy it. Let's develop it further. Several times in this Sermon on the Mount, that is to say in the midst of chapter 5 itself, The Lord made several statements, and I've in fact quoted specific portions, that I want you to note with me. Ye have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. Five times He said that in Matthew chapter 5. And I've asked you to notice the references in verse 21. There in reference to murder, you've heard this, but I say to you. And maybe to some who were listening that day, they perhaps thought, Well, he is setting it aside because you've heard this, but now I'm saying this. The next one, verse 27, in regard to thou shalt not commit adultery. You've heard this, but I say this. The next one, verse 33, swearing. You've heard this, but I say this. Verse number 38, in that particular passage, again in regard to one's one's characteristics of speech and other matters of language, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You've heard this, but I say this. One more, verse number 43. There, you've heard, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy, but I say this. Maybe you and I can imagine it would have been easy for someone to think, well, if he's saying we've heard this said by our teachers and our rabbis and our scholars in the law of Moses, but now he's telling us something different. Is he destroying the law? By no means was He destroying it. Go ahead and note this with me. The Greek word that our Savior used on that occasion, I came not to destroy. That Greek word means to annul, to discard, to abrogate. I didn't come to do that, Jesus said. Fascinating, isn't it? Because you'll notice, we now have a pertinent principle. So if we today don't live under the old law, but Jesus said He didn't come to destroy it, then what happened to it? I wonder what happened to it. We'll look at some other statements there at the bottom of that slide. I've made this consideration. Isn't it true that God's Word cannot be destroyed? It cannot be annulled or abrogated. It cannot, in fact, be dealt with in the way of an annulment. In Psalm 119, verse number 89, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. So how long is it settled? It said forever. In Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9, on several occasions as the word of God is described and set before us, it is described in a fashion, in a way, characteristic of a permanent degree, characteristic of an impossibility to destroy it. How about another one? In Isaiah 40, verse 8, in a passage that deals somewhat with prophecies concerning John the Baptist, we read there on that occasion, The word of the Lord endureth forever. That's quoted in the New Testament, but in Matthew 24, 36, we notice even Jesus highlighting there that the word of the Lord shall stand forever. Maybe as we think about these passages, our question again rises. So if we can't destroy the law but we're not under it today, what happened to it? That law of Moses. One final thought. And it seems to me this one helps us a great deal as we appreciate the magnitude of the topic before us this evening. In John chapter 10, verse 35, would you please note that passage with me? John chapter 10, verse number 35. The context was a very compelling one as Jesus was in conversation with some who were very understanding of the law of Moses. In fact, they would kept it. They had highlighted its significance and its importance. And yet, as Jesus quoted a portion of it, He quoted from the Psalms on that occasion. And then this statement is found. John chapter 10, verse number 35. It says, The Scripture cannot be broken. I wonder what Jesus meant by that. The Scripture cannot be broken. I think all of us would readily agree, well, anybody can choose to disobey it. Is that what Jesus meant? The Scripture cannot be broken? Clearly, that's not what He meant. You'll notice at the very bottom, the Greek verb that is utilized by the Lord on that occasion, the very verb in which Jesus said the Scripture cannot be broken, that word literally means to invalidate or to annul. Jesus said, I'm telling you, the scripture, in whatever way in which it's presented, and in whatever way it is thus accountable to a certain group of people, it cannot be invalidated. It cannot be abrogated, annulled, or destroyed. Isn't that a very profound thought? So, this group of people you and I have studied already tonight, these individuals, these children of Abraham through Jacob, God gave them a law. And now Jesus says in the New Testament, it's not possible to set that law aside. It's not possible to annul it or to invalidate it. Now let's look further. Isn't it interesting then some immediate consequences of that? I've asked you to look at this particular passage. So if it's not possible to set aside God's law, if it is impossible to invalidate or annul it, If it's impossible to destroy it or to cast it aside, look at what that means. Look at how Jesus implied it. Back to Matthew 5, 17 and 18. He said, think not that I'm come to destroy the law of the prophets. I came not to destroy but to fulfill. Jesus didn't come to destroy it. What he did do is he came to fulfill it. Now, it's interesting in as much as the Lord of the next verse highlighted just how great a contemplation that is. Notice verse 18, Matthew chapter 5, verse number 18. As Jesus continued that discussion, He said, For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Now maybe there are some references in that verse that are somewhat unfamiliar to us, but maybe the following matters will be somewhat helpful. First of all, one jot, one jot, J-O-T, that's at least the English word that appears in that verse. For our benefit, might I say, the word jot, here has reference to the 10th letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, as you and I remember, the old law was written primarily in Hebrew, wasn't it? There were 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and its 10th letter was called Jod. Now, as you think about that, you'll notice out to the right that word Y-O-D-H. That's the way in English we would write that word, that letter of that Hebrew alphabet, Jod. Now, I can already see as I look at that, that it didn't display the way I wanted. In the midst there, that Leviticus 21.7, that was supposed to be the Hebrew version of that. And yet, what there has rendered it is put in English letters for the corresponding Hebrew equivalents, or at least something close to it. So, you're going to have a difficult time seeing the point I was hoping to make. In that text of Leviticus 21.7, as you read through all those words, the, word, the letter jot occurred. Now obviously you're not going to be able to see it because the English ones are in place, but I was going to ask us to notice of all the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, the jot is arguably the smallest one. I was going to ask you to notice how difficult it was to even see it or make it out. You and I would almost recognize it like the dot that would go above the letter I in English but put a little curl at the bottom of it. That's what the jot looked like. And you can imagine then if Jesus said not even the smallest particle of one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet is going to pass away. You can't destroy even the smallest one of them. And think about how many letters comprise the entire Old Testament. How many letters there are that make up all the words in the law of Moses. Jesus said even the smallest one's not going to be abrogated. It is not going to be destroyed. Doesn't that place a tremendous consideration on the significance of the Word of God and every letter in it. But that isn't all. What about the tittle? The tittle is merely the stroke or point that was used to distinguish certain Hebrew letters from other ones. And the same thing basically is is going to happen again. I had chosen six occurrences. And out to the right, you notice these English equivalents to these letters But I was going to ask you to notice, interestingly, some of the Hebrew letters really looked a whole lot like each other. And yet the people needed to distinguish them. One letter meant one thing in a word, but it might well convey a completely different thrust in terms of its usage in a different word. Jesus said, not the smallest tittle is going to be abrogated. Not the smallest tittle is going to be done away with. There, I've listed again those particular letters the eighth and fifth letters at least in Hebrew look an awful lot alike the fourth and twentieth letters look an awful lot alike same for the second and eleventh and it was the tittle that would distinguish them as they appeared in various words Jesus said not one jot or tittle will in any wise pass away until all is fulfilled that's an amazing consideration isn't it Oh, how great then it was to observe Jesus said, those of you today who may think that because I say you've heard it was said, but I say to you, I'm not saying any of that law is going to pass away, but it will be fulfilled. That consideration of fulfillment takes us back to the top. And oh, how interesting some of those implications are. Let me ask you to think about just one of them. Maybe you and I have often thought about John chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. They brought a woman to Jesus and said, We've taken this woman in adultery. Now the law says she ought to be stoned. What do you say? Jesus did not affirm that she ought to be stoned at that moment. You may remember He stooped down, wrote on the ground, and ultimately one by one, those who were the supposed ones there present, they They laughed. And then Jesus addressed the woman and said, Where are those thine accusers? She said, There aren't any, Lord. Jesus said, Go and sin no more. Now some have taken that to mean, well, there it is. Jesus set aside the old law. The law said she ought to be stoned, but Jesus said something different. Did he destroy the law on that occasion? He didn't. What else did that old law say? Well, the old law had given additional stipulations relative to carrying out of that death penalty, didn't it? There had to be witnesses. Jesus, on that occasion, asked for the witnesses and told them to first cast the stone, but none of them did it. No one else could cast the stones, you see. The witnesses had to start it first. If they weren't willing, maybe they weren't the witnesses to start with. Maybe they had trumped up the charges, you see. Another thing. The man was supposed to be killed along with a woman, but they didn't bring him. Why not? If they caught her in the act, he should have been there too. They only brought her. Doesn't that suggest then that according to the strict considerations of the law of Moses, she ought not to have been killed because they didn't have the witnesses and the man wasn't there either. No wonder Jesus said what he said. He wasn't setting aside the old law at all. He was in fact requiring them to appreciate the thorough mandates of it. Fascinating, isn't it? Let's look even further. Jesus came to fulfill that old law of Moses. Not to destroy it, but to fulfill it. And that word fulfill literally means to complete, to render as full. You and I can picture it as a cup when you fill it to the brim. Before Jesus came, that law wasn't to the brim yet. But when our Savior came, when the Master came and He fulfilled it, at that point upon its fulfillment then of course one superior to it could be put into place let's develop some of those thoughts like this that old law itself isn't it still so interesting that it foretold of the day when it itself would be superseded the old law actually contained passages that predicted that someday it would pass away and give way to a better law that is to say, he would be replaced by something greater than it. Perhaps case in point, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Wasn't it on that occasion that God through Jeremiah asserted was such a beautiful matter, that sweet consideration of the Christian age when that law would have been replaced, if you please, by a greater one, that Christian law beneath which you and I now serve? It's not that it was ever done away with, it's just it hasn't been given to anyone on earth today who would be susceptible to it. Jesus didn't come to destroy it. He came to fulfill it. In the consideration of that fulfillment, isn't it still interesting that that Jeremiah passage is the same one the Hebrew writer quotes verbatim in Hebrews chapter 8. He quotes it verbatim and says, there's a better promise, there's a better law. Isn't it wonderful that you and I, of course, can serve beneath this better law? Haven't you been so often thankful that you aren't required to do today what they did under that law of Moses system? And yet, in light of that, so many times in the New Testament, those inspired individuals had to face people who thought that old law was in continuation. How often in the books of Galatians and Romans and Hebrews, and 2 Corinthians, do we find Paul and other inspired individuals having to help them see that that old law is not in force any longer. It was fulfilled. Maybe case in point, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 11. Paul, in the heart of that 2 Corinthians epistle, takes their minds back to the scene of Mount Sinai when Moses came down from the mount carrying the tables You may remember Moses' face shone so when he came down that he had to put a veil over his face. Paul said there was great significance in that fact. The fact he had to veil his face was an indication that the glory of that law was passing away. With each moment it was its glory was fading. Why? Because it wasn't permanent. There was less time, it was going to be in force, it was going to give way to another one. Isn't that a beautiful consideration? In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 and following, we notice Paul on that occasion again speaking about when I was a child. I spake as a child. I thought I as a child, but when I came a man, I put away childish things. All the inferiorities of that old law, they gave way to the perfectness of this Christian system. A law, this Christian law, which is infinitely more superior to that old law. Maybe one final thought from Colossians 2.14. There probably is the passage to which you've raced in your mind already. As Paul described that old law of Moses, he said it was nailed to the cross. Jesus, we learned earlier, said He would fulfill it, and He did so at His death. All the attributes and prophecies touching His life, touching the character of His death, touching, of course, what would come about by virtue of the blessing of His death, He fulfilled all of it. You and I today don't look for certain portions of it to yet be fulfilled. Think again about how that has tripped up some in our world today. There are multitudes of people who think that the nation of Israel, for example, the literal country of Israel, somehow fulfills prophecies yet extant in the Old Testament. And they think Israel has to be protected militarily. They think there's a golden piece of land there, if you please, and one on which Jesus is someday going to set foot on again and rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And The Bible doesn't teach it. Jesus said, I came to fulfill that law, and everything in it, including the land promise, long since fulfilled. We don't wait any longer for any element of the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Any parts of it, that still, of course, had any reference to things to come, were reiterated in the New Testament on occasion. When you and I think about those things, isn't it still interesting to hear Jesus in Luke 24 verse 44 say it like this? After He'd been crucified, after He'd been resurrected, there were two disciples, you may remember, who were walking on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus joined Himself to them, and at first they didn't know who He was. They had conversation about the events that had taken place in Jerusalem. You may remember in verse 32, their heart burned within them when they realized who Jesus was and what He had shared with them. And then in verse number 44, as Jesus met with the disciples later, it says, All that is written in the law, in the prophets, and in the Psalms hath fulfillment. Jesus testified, I've now fulfilled all of it. Surely you and I can then close the features of our lesson this afternoon by noting one of those texts in Galatians chapter 5. There were some, you see, in the churches of Galatia who still, though they were many years past the crucifixion of Jesus and many years past the establishment of the church, they thought that the law in some way was still binding. They thought that it was still important to keep it. And Paul said, anybody who goes back to that, has fallen from grace. They have lost or fallen aside from the wonderful consideration of nice and healthy association with God. Fallen from grace. Of course, that truth continues for you and me today. Although it's sad that there are some on earth who misunderstand this and who think that some element of the law of Moses is still binding Hopefully, they'll understand. Hopefully, they'll realize again and again that to go back to that law means you've fallen from the grace of God. That law was nailed to the cross, Jesus fulfilled it. Thanks be to God that His last will and testament is now the, the law that's in force, isn't it? In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 and 17, the description of that last will and testament is given. But maybe it is that we can use that thought to close our lesson tonight. What happened to that law of Moses? It wasn't destroyed. It was fulfilled. And in so doing, it was neatly wrapped up and placed on the shelf, if you please. And nobody serves God beneath it today. It served its purpose. It served the commission that God had in mind for it. As we read in Galatians 3.19, it was only to last until the seed was to come, and yet that seed was Jesus, Galatians 3.29. And so it is, as we close our lesson, we've learned, though it wasn't destroyed, it was fulfilled. And oh, how sweet it is to appreciate how fine a law we serve beneath today. It's called the law of Christ in Galatians 6, verse 2. It's called the law of Christ in passages like 1 Corinthians 9, verses 21 to 23, if tonight you have not obeyed that law of Christ, would you consider urgently and very seriously the condition of your heart at this moment? The Son of God came that you and I might be saved. He came that you and I might have an understanding of and the means whereby, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, we could be right with God. If tonight you haven't obeyed that New Testament law, why do you delay? Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His wonderful name as a Son of God and be baptized. If we could help you do that tonight, we'd be happy to do it. If you, though, have known what it's like to be a Christian, but you have strayed away from faithfulness, you lost confidence and assurance in the truth of the New Testament, and maybe you've begun to do things of which you're not proud, things that have brought shame on you and upon the church and upon the very master that died for you. Don't continue in that state. Come back to your first love tonight under the banner of Revelation 2-5 and beseech us to pray to God on your behalf if it's a public sin. We'd be honored to do that. If we could, in fact, be of assistance to anyone tonight, wouldn't you come at once and let us assist you while together we stand and while we sing?